Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Nafisa Lohawala, a fellow here at Resources for the Future. Uh, Nafisa joined RFF after completing her PhD in 2022 at the University of Michigan, that was in economics, and she's one of the core members of RFF's transportation program. She focuses on the effect of government policies on environmental and safety externalities uh, generated by the transportation sector, as well as a range of other transportation-related issues, one of which we'll be talking about today. So our subject matter for today's conversation is a recently released RFF report on the opportunities and challenges associated with electrifying the medium and heavy duty fleet. And this is a report that Nafisa co-authored alongside Transportation Program Director Bea Spiller and Research Analyst Emma D'Angeli. So stay with us as we discuss this fascinating new report. Hi, Nafisa. It's great to talk with you. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great. Uh, Well, let me start by introducing you more fully to our listeners. And so maybe you can just say a little bit about as a researcher and maybe as an economist in particular, how you became interested in working on transportation issues. Sure. Yeah. So I I was actually pulled into transportation related issues in my third year of graduate school. I was exploring topics for my dissertation and then I got fascinated by the design of subsidy programs for light-duty electric vehicles. And I was trying to understand their implications, and that's when I read a lot about the U.S. auto industry and realized that it's a very heavily regulated uh, industry with a patchwork of regulations and, and incentives. And realizing that the auto industry is an oligopoly where there is a small set of manufacturers who enjoy market power, That made me think, to what extent do the policies do what they're actually supposed to do? So that was my push into studying transportation sector in general. And we know it's one of the biggest contributors to carbon emissions worldwide. We do need prudent economic policies to decarbonize it. So at this point, my research focuses on how policies can help decarbonize transportation sector, taking into account that manufacturers likely have market power. Well, we are uh, very fortunate to have your transportation sector expertise here at RFF. Um, and so, yeah, let's let's dive into the report that, as I mentioned, you and several RFF colleagues put together. And it is particularly, again, just to emphasize for our listeners, it is about electrifying the country's medium and heavy duty vehicle fleet. So let me start by asking you what vehicles, what types of vehicles we're talking about when I say medium and heavy duty vehicles. Um, And yeah, so what types of vehicles were you and your co-authors thinking about? And maybe you can say a little bit too at this early juncture about why this particular segment of the vehicle fleet matters to kind of our overall transportation decarbonization efforts. Sure. So we considered a full range of medium and heavy duty vehicles like You can think of large pickups, delivery vans, transit buses, garbage trucks, long haul trucks. All these different vehicles are central to economic growth and well-being because they move people around, they move goods around. But then at the same time, they are also very polluting. In fact, they comprise only 5% of total vehicles on U.S. roads and yet account for like 26% of greenhouse gas emissions, at least in 2020. And these emissions also tend to disproportionately affect environmental justice communities, which are located close to major highways and warehouses and depots where these vehicles tend to be housed. 
So electrifying this, decarbonizing the segment can have really great benefits that will not only reduce transportation sector's overall contribution to climate change, it will also improve health and well-being of communities that are historically affected by transportation pollution. Hmm, great. Yeah, that's a really good grounding. And I think the importance of the the study that you all had put together. So, um, so let me ask you next about the status of electrification efforts in this sector today. Uh, it's, the report references what I would consider a fair amount of momentum in this area. And so can you say just a little bit about where you see the opportunities for progress in electrification over maybe the short and medium term? Yeah, I, I agree. There's certainly a lot of momentum in this space. The federal government is providing billions of dollars in funding for uh, medium and heavy duty electrification. California and New York have their own goals. Then there are these new companies like Rivian and Proterra that are focusing exclusively on electric, medium and heavy duty vehicles. And then there are large fleets like Amazon ordering thousands of electric delivery vans. There are many utilities as well that have started projects to ensure a smooth transition. And this is also an opportune moment to electrify these large vehicles because the electric technology is there. It has advanced rapidly over the past years because of the growth in light duty uh, EV adoption and manufacturing. Uh, the cost of producing lithium-ion battery has fallen by more than 90% over the past decade. And these advancements can bring cost savings to the medium and heavy duty sector as well. Hmm. Wow. So it sounds like there have been technology innovations. There have been increases in both supply and demand for these vehicles. So that sounds like quite a, a positive story. But I do know that um, you and Bea and Emma point out a number of challenges, another of sort of countervailing weights to some of these um, opportunities as well. So let's spend let's spend a fair bit of time talking about the challenges. I know that you go into them in a fair amount of depth in the report, and I want to make sure we give that um, enough time here. So, you know, some of those challenges, I would say, sound fairly similar to ones that we hear in the light duty fleet. Things like cost differential compared to internal combustion engines, uh, vehicles, um, concerns about availability and speed of charging infrastructure. So some familiar challenges for sure. Um, but then there are also some that I think are more specific to the larger vehicles. So let's spend some time on challenges. And let me start with a chunk that's related to kind of fleets and manufacturers. How would you characterize the challenges that they're facing? Sure. So we actually identify a lot of different challenges in the report. From the fleet's perspective, as you rightly pointed out, one key challenge is that these vehicles are substantially more expensive than their diesel counterparts. Their purchase price is quite high, but unlike the light duty vehicles, uh, the fleets housed in depots also need to invest in their own charging station on site. And the cost of which is also quite high. It can exceed like $100,000. On the positive side, the maintenance cost of electric vehicles tends to be lower, but then the cost of charging them can be quite high depending on the structure of electricity tariffs. And then there are also these other costs like hiring experts on the staff to maintain these fleets and higher insurance costs for electric vehicles. Fleets also have to navigate through many logistical hurdles that are unique to this medium and heavy duty segment. So electric trucks typically have a driving range of less than 200 miles, which is far lower than the 1,000 plus miles of diesel vehicle range. And recharging them also takes a much longer time, and the public charging infrastructure is quite sparse. That's a big problem because almost 50% of medium and heavy-duty vehicles are owned by independent owner-operators who are more likely to charge en route than install 
uh, expensive charging station at at home. And the massive weight of batteries is also problematic because then it decreases the truck's payload capacity, which is also an important feature for the medium and heavy duty vehicles. So this is just from the fleet's perspective. (laughs) Thinking about manufacturing perspective, there is also a long list of challenges. We actually started thinking about what makes these trucks more expensive. And of course, the large batteries and high critical mineral prices are one reason. But then there are also many other issues that are particular to medium and heavy duty uh, electric uh, truck manufacturing. So one issue is that manufacturing processes for these vehicles differ substantially from diesel counterparts. And with every improvement in battery technology, there's a need to upgrade all the equipment and the vehicle designs. Then another big issue is that the current demand for these vehicles is also quite low. And that creates uncertainty for manufacturers, also increases the costs for them because uh, they have to then pay higher prices for smaller orders of parts and materials. And then there is also a risk for for fleets when, when the demand is so low, because when fleets buy their vehicles, the manufacturer will generally be providing servicing support throughout the vehicle's lifetime. But if there are very few sales, fleets might worry that the vehicle might be just pulled out of the market, or if it's a startup, the manufacturer might itself go out of business. So (laughs) that's one challenge. There's another issue, which is that there are like these different use cases are quite heterogeneous, which means that the truck manufacturers need to specialize in just one class or one use case. So what we see in the data is that for several of the use cases, there are very few manufacturers that are producing just specifically that use case, which means that there could be a high market power in in these segments that that can also keep the prices high. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you give an example of a use case that you're talking about? Is that something like a garbage truck that has a very specific design for a specific purpose? Or can you just say a little bit more when you say use case, um, maybe give us a flavor of what that means? Yeah. So, I mean, transit buses tend to be like really different from garbage trucks. So I guess like a a manufacturer who is focusing on electrifying, you know, garbage truck, for example, would just be focusing on that and maybe not dealing with transit buses. So, yeah. So when you look at one segment, for example, just the transit buses, there are very few manufacturers that are producing that. Great. And and Nafisa, you also mentioned that sometimes the actions of these manufacturers, these fleets and manufacturers can have spillover effects. And I wondered if you could just say a little bit more maybe about what spillovers you are talking about and maybe just generally how you think about spillovers in case our listeners aren't as familiar with that term. But what does that mean and, and how does it play out in this context? Yeah. So thanks for that question. Um, so we do talk about this challenge of spillovers and what that broadly means is that the actions that are taken by fleets or manufacturers can impose costs or deliver benefits for others. And these agents may not account for these costs and benefits if they don't see uh, any pricing um, signals there. So when when such spillovers are unpriced, the market outcomes may not be efficient from a general welfare perspective. So for example, when fleets are purchasing vehicles, they don't really take into account the fact that them buying an electric vehicle can reduce U.S. dependence on imported oil or improve local air quality uh, unless they are subsidized, you know. Um, They are also unlikely to take into account the the cost of of charging the electric trucks. 
uh, they may not internalize the time variant cost of uh, electricity while they charge their vehicles. Uh, similarly, for the manufacturer side, so research by one manufacturer tends to benefit others because then they can imitate them. And yet, if there are no subsidies for research and development, manufacturers may not account for such spillovers when they choose their R&D investments, which may lead to suboptimally low investment in R&D. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's turn to another kind of important segment of challenges that I know you discussed in the report, um, which is around equity. I know a topic that certainly something that you and Bea have focused on quite a bit. But what are some of the equity challenges associated with these electrification efforts? Yeah. So making the transition equitable is another big challenge. Of course, electrifying transportation can improve air quality in the disadvantaged communities and it can reduce disparities. So that's that's a good thing. But an equitable transition doesn't just mean reducing pollution. The fleets in these communities must also be able to switch to these medium heavy duty electric vehicles affordably. And small fleet operators are more likely to acquire uh, the, the electric vehicles through the used market. So that's a challenge because uh, they may not benefit from the incentives that are available for these new vehicles. They are also less likely to have experience navigating complex electricity tariffs, and which is why they may face greater difficulty managing their electric bills for these electric vehicles. Interesting. And is there much of a, a used vehicle market at this juncture, or is that also going to take several years to really develop, given that the kind of new supply is just really ramping up? Yeah, I, I think it's going to take a while before there's an established used vehicle market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then you mentioned electricity tariffs and kind of the challenges around navigating the cost of the of the fuel for these electric vehicles, which is electricity. Uh, there are also, you know, broader challenges with supplying more electricity as we ramp up the number of electric vehicles overall. So what are the challenges that you identified related to these electricity systems? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's actually a really big challenge, and it's particularly relevant to the medium and heavy-duty segment. And it's because charging these large fleets may require multi-megawatt power levels. Such high demand levels can actually destabilize the system and cause blackouts if the electric grid is not upgraded first. And these upgrades would have to span the entirety of the electric system, the local distribution grid, the transmission systems, as well as the power plants. And if you want to actually maximize the benefits from the electrification, then the additional generation also needs to come from renewables and not from fossil fuels. Now, some of these expensive upgrades can be avoided if fleets can reduce their peak demand through managed charging. But uh, if, if fleets are facing a flat electric tariff, they generally don't have an incentive to do that. So that's another big challenge. Hmm. Right. And as you noted as well, some of these smaller fleet owners um, may not have the the bandwidth, the expertise to sort of... Uh, figure out how to manage that charging in a way that might be optimal for reducing emissions and reducing costs. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair. Exactly. Yeah. So, Nafisa, this has been a really great overview of the challenges. And I just want to reflect for a second. Um, it does feel a little bit like grid decarbonization and then subsequently fleet electrification. You you pointed out that that's an important sequence of events, but if we can decarbonize uh, the power sector and then electrify the fleet, it feels like that's in some ways become kind of the de facto proposal or the de facto climate solution for much of the transportation sector. Um, but you also noted 
very articulately that there are a lot of challenges to that. And so in the report, you highlight that there are some alternatives, alternatives to electric medium and heavy duty vehicles that might be more cost effective or maybe even necessary in certain circumstances, uh, given some of these challenges you just described. So maybe let me ask you, what are some of those non-electric but still low carbon vehicle options? And maybe you can give us an example of when one of those alternatives might actually be a better solution. Yeah, so we actually talk about three such technologies in our in our report. So there is this hydrogen fuel cell technology, which may be particularly suitable for long haul applications because they have shorter refueling times. They also tend to have lighter weight, which means uh, there would be a lesser of a concern about smaller payloads. It has its own challenges, though. So, for example, for fuel cells to save emissions, the hydrogen must be created with renewables. Uh, then there is this hybrid truck technology which can be most effective when the drivers start and stop the vehicle frequently, and that can allow the benefits of regenerative braking to improve the fuel efficiency. And we also discussed this um, biodiesel fuel. That's another alternative that has potential to reduce emissions. The challenge with that is is that biodiesel production uh, requires expansion of cropland, and that can crowd out other land uses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let me now turn to policy options, and maybe it's even fair to say policy solutions, which is the kind of the final theme that you call out in the report, and obviously a, a critical part of our conversation. Uh, so I wanted to ask about policy incentives that already exist. You've mentioned several, um, and I, I'm guessing that those are part of recently passed legislation that might be kind of already affecting these electrification efforts. So in what ways does either the bipartisan infrastructure law or the Inflation Reduction Act incentivize uh, the adoption of these electric, medium and heavy duty vehicles? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so both of these combined provide billions of dollars in funding for medium heavy duty electrification. And they're providing several subsidies and grants, not just for purchasing these vehicles, but also for manufacturing them, for investing in electric grid and as well as developing the the public charging infrastructure. So I can mention a few programs. Uh, for fleets, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act provides up to 40,000 tax credit for purchasing a vehicle and up to 100,000 for uh, installing charging stations. For manufacturers, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is providing up to $3 billion in loans for building new manufacturing facilities. It has also set aside $2 billion for grants to retool the existing auto manufacturing facilities. Uh, In terms of the electric grid infrastructure, there are production and investment tax credits for clean energy. They incentivize investment in both distributed as well as utility scale generation capacity. And then there are also grants for transmission expansion as well as integration for offshore wind. Then to invest in public charging, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law has created the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure, or NEVI, program funding that provides around like $5 billion for public charging stations that could be used for commercial vehicles. And then both these acts also set aside some funding to develop a robust supply of critical minerals that are used for the batteries. Right, right. Yeah, that's a very important piece of the puzzle, I know. And so beyond what's already on the books, which is obviously a lot, um, but, you know, that's not the end of the story either. So what are some of the other policy options looking ahead that you and your RFF colleagues identified that might kind of further address some challenges and maybe speed up even further, again, the electrification of uh, this sector? Yeah, so there is a lot that could be done. There is an accompanying blog post with the with the report 
uh, where we describe two policies. So let me describe them to you. One option is to provide funds to local utilities to pay for the upgrades to the local distribution system. Uh, why? So because when utilities make these expensive upgrades to the distribution network, they are likely to spread the cost among the commercial customers, which can increase the electricity rates for charging the vehicles. Now, given that fleets are already facing such high costs and challenges to electrify, adding additional electricity charges can reduce their incentive to electrify. So this is a one place where government intervention could be helpful. Another potential area is incentivizing electric truck fleets to mitigate their impact on electric system by reducing their peak demand. This can imp help improve not just the grid reliability and reduce the blackouts, but it can also avoid the construction and maintenance of expensive power plants and other infrastructure that would be needed to meet the highest potential demand. And one way to do that could just be to incentivize the use of charging management software. It's actually a pretty great technology. It can alleviate the pressure on the grid by reducing the speed of charging in periods of high demand and shifting these charging sessions to the time when grid is less likely to experience congestion. Now, some fleets may adopt this software voluntarily, especially if they're facing these demand charges or complex time of use tariffs. But fleets that are facing a flat electricity tariff generally have no incentive to do so. And as you mentioned um, just a few minutes ago, some fleets may just not be aware of the benefits of investing in the software. So future policies in this direction could potentially reduce peak demand and ensure grid reliability while keeping the electricity tariffs low. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, I would I would strongly encourage all our listeners to take a look at the reports. Very readable. Um, it is available on the IFF website. And yeah, I think it does a fantastic job of emphasizing both the importance of this sector in terms of our overall decarbonization efforts, and also just how the pieces are going to have to come together well to really to really make this work to everyone's advantage. So Nafisa, thank you so much for talking us through the report. I really appreciate it. So let me close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. Um, so Nafisa, what kind of content would you want to recommend for our listeners um, along, you know, any topic, but really what you've been thinking and reading about recently? What's on the top of your stack? Yeah, so I am a huge fan of Julia Pearl's book. Uh, it's called The Book of Why, The New Science of Cause and Effect. I think it should be at the top of reading list for everyone and especially for economic researchers. It presents a very compelling argument for why studying causation is crucial, not just in economics, but in numerous fields. And I think it has the power to really enhance one's perspective on cause and effect relationships. Hmm, right. I know. I feel like I've heard a million times here at RFF that, you know, correlation is not causation and that causation is really um, kind of the key to understanding a number of things. But is that sort of at the heart of the book? Well, that is, but I mean, the book goes into a lot more detail about how to think about causation. And uh, yeah, they have some really cool um, causal diagrams. And I mean, it really helps you think about mechanisms that are going on in the background there. Hmm, interesting. All right. Well, great. That's a great recommendation. Um, so thank you again, Nafisa. It's been a pleasure and look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. 
you can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.